This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, last week the Supreme Court heard arguments on Trump's effort to change the way seats in the House of Representatives are apportioned. It has been based on a state's total population, as the Constitution requires. Trump wants to exclude the undocumented from that count, which would mean California would lose two or three seats. David Cole reviews the arguments. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU. Plus, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about the documentary Coded Bias, about the women of color who organized the Algorithm Justice League. We'll also talk about the Kate Winslet film Ammonite and Driveways, Brian Dennehy's last movie. But first, L.A. elected a new progressive district attorney last month, George Gascon, and on Monday, he announced a sweeping set of changes that he's going to introduce, starting with an end to cash bail. For comment, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at USC. He's well known in the media for talking about Black Lives Matter on NBC, CBS, MSNBC, NPR stations here in L.A. And he has a new book out. It's called N-Word Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice and the Law. Jody Armour, welcome back. Great to be back with you, John. Well, the biggest county in the United States is L.A. County, 10 million people. And we have a new district attorney, George Gascon. He got 54 percent of the vote. He was sworn in this week and he announced his day one agenda, starting with an end to cash bail beginning on January 1st, in just a couple of weeks. The LA Times called that a seismic change. I wonder if you agree with that. Yes, this has been a jaw-dropping development. It's been the vindication of all of the marching in the streets over the summer that resulted in ballot box action in the form of a new, a new district attorney, uh, Jackie Lacey, a black woman, had been the district attorney for eight years. And um, you had this progressive prosecutor uh, 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 come in. Uh, George Gascon ran on a progressive prosecutor platform, uh, made no bones about it, and got a lot of support from, from Black Lives Matter and a lot of um, other um, progressive groups when it comes to criminal justice reform. And he paid, th this, this is a, a ringing vindication of all those efforts, John. You know, they say you reap what you sow. Well, they sowed the seeds of justice in the streets these, this summer and these city streets this summer, and we're reaping it in these concrete actions by Gascon. And you're right, cash bail is just one of the many reforms, but let's start with that, that he has said he is going to um, uh, immediately undertake. And the idea that the presumption of innocence should accompany a citizen until their conviction shouldn't be so radical. But the idea of cash bail is you, you, unless you can have enough money to pay, we're going to keep you locked up, even though we're presuming you innocent. What happened to the presumption of innocence? All right. And so he, he's finding a way to start to uh, give the presumption of innocence some real teeth by phasing out cash bail. And, you know, that doesn't mean anybody walks the street. If Charles Manson is, you know, is just picked up after committing some crimes, he, no matter how much money he has, he shouldn't be able to get out. And, and he won't get out under this new system. 
The rationale for bail is risk of flight. What do we know about risk of flight of people who've been arrested and charged? Yeah, we know that it doesn't bear a lot of connection or relationship to their money, to their, to, to their financial status. It has to do with a lot of other factors, um, like whether they are informed, for example, of their show court dates when they have to show up, when they have to you know, do the things they have to do. They found that just by improving the communication, not imposing cash bail in those jurisdictions that have removed it, but improving the communication between those um, who have to show up um, and, and court personnel, they have a much higher uh, rate of people coming in and, and not um, trying to take any flight and not proposing any flight risk. So we're finding out that cash bail was a horrible proxy for flight risk, and, and this is going to remedy that. There's all these other big changes we need to talk about. Also close to the top of the list is a ban on prosecutors seeking something called enhanced prison sentences. What are enhanced prison sentences and why does George Gascon getting rid of them? They are relics of a hopefully now bygone and benighted era in which we decided we were going to be as draconian as possible toward anybody who committed a crime. In the 80s and 90s, we said, if you belong in a gang, for example, we're going to give you gang enhancement uh, uh, punishment and sentences. So say you, you take some jeans from a store and that has a one-year penalty, we might throw five years on top of that because you're a member of a gang. So now you're looking at six or more just because of that. And the three strikes violation, the three strikes law, of course, was another kind of related to status enhancement way of including more punishment based not on the underlying offense that you're being charged for, but based on the fact that you have some history of crime. You're a repeat offender. And so we're going to enhance all the way to the point of life, you know, uh, for a relatively a minor offense. Uh, Jackie Lacey, for example, got an 18-year-old boy convicted um, for taking a, cell, a, a phone from a, a backseat of an unoccupied car. And uh, as an 18-year-old, had uh, two prior purse snatchings as a 16-year-old, and she got 25 to life for him um, because of uh, the, these kinds of enhancements. So what Gascon is saying is no status enhancement. I'm going to a directive to my prosecutors not to seek status enhancements when they are bringing charges against people who are who are apprehended and being tried. Charge them for the underlying offense, get the penalty that attaches to that, but no enhancements. And another big one is that L.A. County will now stop prosecuting first-time offenders for a lot of nonviolent crimes like trespassing, disturbing the peace, public intoxication, and loitering. I read the DA's office filed nearly 100,000 of this kind of misdemeanor cases last year. Uh, what's Gascon's logic here in not prosecuting these as crimes? His logic is that for too long in this country, we've, used, we've made jails the receptacles of our social failures and used the police to address social problems rather than directly addressing those problems with care and intervention that could make a difference without having to resort to the law. So we've decided, for example, to crack down on the down and out in Los Angeles with measures like the Safer Cities Initiative in 2006 that put all these additional officers on the street to go around and, you know, in the name of therapeutic policing and paternalistic 
um, policing, we were going to solve the homelessness problem by cracking down on the homeless. And it didn't work. It, it failed miserably. And so what he's saying is we're going to stop criminalizing poverty by filing all these kinds of misdemeanor charges and cracking down on the down and out in that way. And we're going to increase our uh, diversion use. We're going to increasingly use diversion programs to help address the underlying causes. And so this is really saying a lot about how you think of crime. Do you see crime as just bad people with, with, with bad character acting badly? Or do you see it as a symptom of our own social failures and we need to take a different approach? And he's taking this latter approach and it's, and it's for a prosecutor, really remarkable and groundbreaking. The protesters in the streets focused a lot on police killing of unarmed people, mostly people of color. Jackie Lacey never prosecuted any police officers for, for misconduct. Gascon is going to change that, but there's also this backlog. There's lots of cases that are still spoken of often by Black Lives Matter. Uh, what's going to happen to those past cases that, of accusations of police misconduct? Yeah, this raises the question, John, of how we think about the time dimension when it comes to social and racial justice. And it has to do with some of the resentencing stuff that Gascon has talked about. He's going to revisit all of these cases and resentence them. We we'll may talk about that in a moment, but that's a, that's a big deal. But it's also about looking back at old use of force cases since 2012 and reviewing them and, and making sure that the prior prosecutor, Jackie Lacey, who received a lot of contributions from police unions in this last election, over $7 million, for example, there can be questions about the objectivity and neutrality of a decision maker who is making decisions about people who are funding her campaign, right? And so yes. he's saying all of her calls since 2012 are, are questionable. They, they, you know, at least they don't inspire confidence in the public because of that conflict of interest. And so I'm going to have a commission, he's saying, review all use of force cases since 2012 to make sure that there is no ground for a prosecution. 1,200 prosecutors up to now, their careers have been based on getting convictions. The more, the better, the bigger, the better. That's the way you get promoted as a prosecutor. The LA Times is reporting on something they call panic among some career prosecutors uh, who are complaining that this is uh, these new policies are a slap in the face to crime victims and the fact that, uh, quote, we are the only people standing between truly dangerous criminals and the general public, close quote. What is going to happen with opposition among the prosecutors. Oh yeah, there are a lot of people, John, whose pro professional identity and personal identity are rooted in a moral framework that has been about retribution, retaliation, and revenge. That's, that's been our moral compass for 40, 50 years when it comes to criminal justice. And now as a result of the protests in the street and this wave of new progressive prosecutors led by progressive voters who put them in office, in the first place, all right, you have a shift from that moral compass, retribution, retaliation, and revenge, toward restoration, rehabilitation, redemption. 
You see that all over uh, 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 George Gascon's other reforms. He wants to go back and review thousands of cases for potential resentencing, including three strikes enhancement cases from the past, people in prison for more than 20 years. And so he's saying, essentially, we have a different moral compass and framework today than we've had in the past. And we have to cope with the time dimension. We have to retroactively apply our now more humane moral framework the one rooted in restoration, redemption, and rehabilitation. And a lot of people, other prosecutors, whose personal identity and professional identities have been rooted in that old moral framework that is now being renounced, that we recognize has led us to the new Jim Crow and a lot of other social ills, they're going to have, they're going to, have to deal with the cognitive dissonance and either come around. It's going to be hard to say a lot of my professional life has been based on a lie in a sense has been based on a kind of morally obtuse way of looking at the world in which I de we dehumanize criminals. And so, yes, it's going to take some time for that, that process to work its way out, for the, the weeding to happen, John, but it's a, it's a necessary, uh, necessary part of the process right now. And it's happened in other places. Larry Krasner ran into it in Philadelphia, Chase Boudin up in um, San Francisco. Other progressive prosecutors have run into this problem. And you run into it with judges who are sitting on the bench because a lot of these judges were, were, used to be prosecutors. And so their professional identities are rooted in the old moral framework of retribution, retaliation, revenge. And now they have these prosecutors coming before them and telling them, judge, you've had it wrong for the last 30, 40 years. You know, you have to rethink it all. And now we're going in another direction. So they're going to run into friction, not only from other prosecutors, but from people on the bench as well. Final question. How did this happen? How did L.A. elect a progressive D.A.? What did it take? It took uh, the, something you write about a lot, John, the people. This is people power in its most uplifting expression. You had people marching not only this year, but Black Lives Matter you know, with building the infrastructure for that George Floyd protest that we saw roiling the streets of America. They were doing the work for that back in 2013, 14, 15, 16. The cameras went away. They kept building the infrastructure, strengthening the sinews of connection. And that resulted in this monumental shift in public attitudes about blame and punishment, crime and punishment. The people have responded to the activism, have responded to the people getting in the streets and the, not only their passion, but their logic, the, the soundness of their arguments, too. And it, it, it's been one of the most heartening things I've seen. I'm glad I've lived to see it. Jody Armour of the USC Law School, his new book is N-Word Theory. That's spelled N-Asterisk-G-G-A Theory. Jody, it's great to have you on the show. Always great. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard Trump's argument that he can exclude undocumented immigrants and refugees from the counts used to determine how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. He hopes to cut the number of representatives from California and other states with 
more undocumented people and increase the number of representatives from states that have fewer, which are mostly, of course, Republican. The change would also shift federal funding away from the Democratic states towards those Republican states and all this for the next 10 years. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent and national legal director of the ACLU. And he also teaches at Georgetown University Law Center. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, seats in the House of Representatives currently are allocated on the basis of total population rather than the number of legal residents. What's the basis of the current practice and how long has it been in effect? So the basis is the Constitution, and it's been in effect forever. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, if you call the beginning of the the the, the, the nation uh, forever, the, the Constitution. You know, the, the initially, uh, what it directed was that the uh, apportionment be to the states by their respective numbers, and they excluded two categories from the numbers of people within a state, uh, infamously slaves, who they treated as three-fifths of a person, uh, and Indians not taxed. But notably, they did not exclude uh, immigrants. And then in, uh, after the Civil War, in the 14th Amendment, uh, they provided that um, the apportionment should be based on all persons in each state. Uh, and they specifically rejected a proposal to have it be all citizens or all voting uh, people who can vote, which at that time was, you know, did not include uh, uh, women, for example. Um, and partly they did that because there were large immigrant populations in the North, and they were worried that the Northern states would not ratify the 14th Amendment unless their immigrants were counted. Um, and then in 1929, Congress passed the first Census Act, um, which uh, on the basis of those two constitutional provisions, required um, a count of the total population. You know, and again, what does total population means? When you say the total population of Los Angeles is 4 million people, you don't think, oh, that's 4 million citizens and lawful permanent residents, but not counting, you know, the undocumented who are persons in that, in, in that area. Well, let's talk about the census for another minute. The Constitution requires that Congressional districts be apportioned using information, as you say, from the census. California, I read, has the largest number of undocumented immigrants. Trump said in arguing for this uh, case, it was 6% of the total California population, around 2.4 million people. I wonder if that number is correct. How many undocumented people are there in California, according to the census? Uh, the census itself does not ask people whether they are a citizen or not. In fact, we litigated that issue, uh, you know, two years ago when Trump sought to put a citizenship question on the census, <clears throat> which um, we argued would reduce and was, in fact, the purpose would reduce participation by uh, immigrants. Um, uh, we ultimately succeeded in the Supreme Court, and so he wasn't able to ask about citizenship on the census. So we don't have, you know, exact numbers, but I think those numbers are probably close, 2.5 million in, in California. And, the, you know, the, the purpose of the census and the purpose of apportionment is to give the states representation in the federal government um, that is proportional to the people that they have to govern. 
And California has to govern its entire population. It cannot choose to govern only, you know, the citizens and those with lawful permanent resident status or some other lawful status. It has to govern all of the people. And therefore, it deserves representation in Congress that respects that obligation. So the census did not count the number of undocumented people, but Trump has ordered the Census Bureau to provide a count of undocumented residents. And I understand they've been working on this. How's it going? Well, they've been a little bit hiding the ball on how it's going. Uh, They're supposed to be turning over this information, uh, some part of it on December 31st and the rest of it by January 11th. So, and they've been working on it for some time now. Um, This policy was announced in July. So that's not a lot of time, but a year before that, uh, Trump ordered them to start gathering uh, administrate what they call administrative records that would establish the um, immigration status of of uh, people in the United States. So you know they have records on millions of uh, immigrants, uh, and they then have to sort of match those to the census responses. You know, and when they go to a house and they ask the house to respond to the census, or when you respond online and you give your name and your your address, they then have to uh, match those. And then seek to, uh, the idea is that they would then provide to Trump two numbers. One is the number of total people who live in each state. And the other is the number of total people minus those who they can identify as undocumented immigrants. And then Trump plans to take that second number and to base apportionment on that second number. Whether they will succeed in doing that is uh, a little bit of a mystery at this point, um, uh, which was part of what, what the discussion was at the at the oral argument on Monday in the Supreme Court. So let's talk a little more about the, that, the, the argument on Monday. The acting solicitor general, somebody named Jeffrey B. Wall, argued that where the Constitution says apportionment for the House shall be based on the number of persons in each state, that, he said, can be understood to, to require, quote, a sovereign's permission to remain within the jurisdiction, close quote. Is that a good argument? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think so. And, I, and, and from the questions of the justices, it did not appear that he had five justices that would agree with that view. They, they, pr- they predicate that view on the fact that there was a guy named Vattel, Edward D. Vattel, uh, 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 who wrote a book in French about the law of nations in which he defined the term inhabitant to be citizens uh, and people who, uh, foreign nationals who have permission to um, be in a, in a state. But he wasn't defining it for purposes of the census. He was defining it for purposes of international law. And there's no indication that that book, you know, was sort of uh, in common uh, distribution in in the in the country at the time, and and all the evidence of the dictionaries and the like at the time were that what they meant by persons in each state was all persons, all residents, all people who are who usually live and sleep in the state, and that is in fact the standard that has been used for two hundred plus years without variance. Uh, Trump is seeking to change that. Um, and uh, and predicating it, the only real you know evidence, quote unquote evidence they can point to is this obscure international law treatise, uh, which you know I'm sure very very few people even heard of, much less read. 
and 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 defining the term for purposes of uh, of, of international law, not not constitutional law. Of course, we're all paying a lot of attention to the newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Trump said he wanted to get her onto the court while he was still president in the hopes that she would tilt decisions in his direction. Were there any signs from the argument on Monday about how she might vote on this one? She, t- I, you know, I, I've listened to her now in a number of uh, arguments in the court, and she's actually pretty hard to read. She is a justice, at least thus far, who has asked very hard and good questions of both sides, which makes it harder to read, you know, her. I mean, someone like Justice Alito, he leaves you no doubt where he is, and he is entirely an advocate up there. Justice Kavanaugh is also, you know, pretty pretty transparent about where he where he is. But Justice uh, Justice Barrett is more in the in the at least in her questioning, she's more like Justice Roberts. She asks hard questions of both sides, which I you know I think is actually a better way to be as a justice. But so we don't really have an indication of where she'll vote. I read that she said to the uh, acting Solicitor General, "quote A lot of the historical evidence and longstanding practice." really cuts against your position, close quote. But then he replied, yes, but, you know, the fact that an idea is new doesn't necessarily mean it's unconstitutional. Well, you know, that's true. But when it's been discussed and, uh, you know, it's not like it's it's actually a new idea. In, in 1929, when Congress passed the, the first Census Act, a statute that sort of tries to, you know, lay out the details, it was it was proposed that we exclude illegal immigrants. And it was, and people like, uh, you know, various people were, were very supportive of it, but they, um, but they uh, concluded that they couldn't do that. Congress concluded they couldn't do that because the Constitution requires counting all persons. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a new idea. It's an old idea. It's just that it's been rejected at every point, including by the Justice Department itself under prior administrations. When the, when the idea has arisen, they have said no. You shouldn't, uh, you know, exclude undocumented immigrants. And if you did, it would be unconstitutional. So the only thing that's new is that Trump is reversing, seeking to reverse 200 years of consistent precedent from the framers to Congress uh, to the executive branch itself. Well, from the arguments on Monday, or at least the way they were uh, reported, it seemed like the court's conservative majority might want to postpone a decision on the grounds that they haven't finished, the Census Bureau doesn't have a count yet, we don't know how many people they're talking about, and if they postpone it, then the case would probably become moot since Biden is going to become president on January 20th, and he's certainly not going to pursue this. Would it be a good uh, outcome to postpone this, or is this a question that needs an answer? Well, I I think it may need an answer. So there, under the statute, the apportionment report has to be sent by the president to Congress uh, by January 11th. So it will be done by Trump. It, you know, and then there's a, there's an open question of to what extent can a subsequent president, after the fact, undo it? If it was unconstitutional, he certainly could undo it. But that would just then require the court to address it at a later point. I think what, what was clear was that the court recognizes that there are there is some uncertainty right now in terms of how much the Census Bureau actually can deliver on Trump's effort. 
Uh, and if they're unable to deliver, maybe um, the court need not resolve it. Uh, but you know that Trump is going to seek to deliver on this. He's put a whole bunch of political appointees in the Census Bureau to, for this purpose. So they're going to be, you know, riding them hard to do it. You know, I, I, you know, if, if I were betting, I would say the court may well put off a decision for a, a short time. But I think it's going to have to resolve this one way or the other. I don't think the question is going to go away. Even with with Biden coming in, there's if so, if Biden comes in, he tries to undo it, then there will be a constitutional challenge to the undoing of it by Biden. And at the end of the day, it'll turn on with, well, was Trump right that you could exclude undocumented immigrants or not? So the underlying question here is who is represented in Congress? Is it the people who are citizens and lawful residents or is it everybody? What does the ACLU say about this? Well, we, we, we brought the challenge. So we say everybody counts. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, in two respects, everybody counts. One is, you know, we're all here. We're all subject to the laws. We're equally subject to the laws, whether we're an immigrant, whether we're documented or undocumented. We still can be arrested for speeding. We still have to pay our taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and indeed, uh, you know, the undocumented, uh, you know, prov provide a trillion dollars of our GDP every year, and they're 80% of our essential workers. So they are here and they deserve to be counted. But in addition, in addition, um, this is really about the state's right to be represented as much as it is about individuals' rights to be represented. And as I was saying before, if you are a state like California or Texas with a substantial immigrant population, there's nothing you can do about it because it's a federal power to, to control immigration, but you have to govern all of the people who are in your state. And surely you should have representation in Congress that reflects your obligations to govern all the people in your state. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU and the nation's legal affairs correspondent. Thank you, David. Thanks. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Ella Taylor with Virus Time TV viewing. Ideas about what to watch while we stay at home this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared at the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today once again at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Still at home. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, there's a new documentary out about artificial intelligence. It's called Coded Bias, and it raises the question, how intelligent is artificial intelligence? Tell us about coded bias. Well, in fact, we've had quite a lot this year of, of movies, documentaries in particular, uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and the misuse of uh, technology and, and so on. Most of them have been made and largely feature men. And here comes a really, uh, we, we talked about totally under control and, and there's also the social dilemma, which is 
almost all male. Um, and uh, it's worth watching, except that it's by a lot of guys who made a lot of money in the tech industry. This is somewhat different. Um, it's made by um, a woman. Her name is Shalini Kantaya, and it's about a woman. In fact, it's about quite a lot of women because almost the talking heads, almost all the talking heads are women. Uh, it's about a woman named uh, Joy Bwalamwini, who is African-American and uh, a PhD and does research at the MIT Media Lab. And she wanted to focus on something very particular, facial recognition software um, and the way in which it discriminates against people of color and against women in a highly selective way. That may sound rather dry to our listeners, but this, this movie is actually loads of fun, partly because Joy is loads of fun. She is a very uh, natty dresser. She has all these gl glasses in different colors and so on. And she's very delightful, seems to be a very delightful person. And the movie is made by nearly all women uh, in front of and behind the camera, including a, a bunch of women who are either African-American, Latina, and uh, in one case, a woman from the former Soviet, no, she's Turkish actually, uh, who almost all of them who are scientists. One of them calls herself a weapon of math destruction, <laughs> uh, as in mathematics. And uh, they set out to show how uh, algorithms tend to privilege, not surprisingly, affluent males with lighter skins, because the technology tends to, um, especially facial recognition technology, um, it tends to see to it that these men do not make it into police data files, whereas, on the other hand, the more diverse ones do make it into the police data files. And um, the UK figures rather largely in this movie because anyone who's been to England will know that you can't move without a surveillance camera there. And there's a, an organization called Big Brother Watch that follows this around, um, especially when people are mistakenly arrested for somebody else, something we know very well in this country as well. Some of it is quite funny, but most of it is, is serious. And it's about how um, facial recognition technology is, A, often inaccurate, especially for people of color, and B, it violates civil rights in all sorts of areas, such as police surveillance, targeted ads, employer checks, applications, uh, rental applications, college applications, loan applications, and of course, sentencing, and also at the level of ideas in helping to, um, to swing elections. San Francisco was the very first city, I think, in the world to ban uh, facial recognition technology. And most of these women are not just scientists, they are also activists. Uh, Joy herself is the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> sense of humor, at least, which is good. Um, and they have been actually quite successful, so much so that in June 2020, IBM, Amazon and Microsoft temporarily uh, put racial, racially biased artificial intelligence down from their, their websites. So um, it has been successful. The problem with all of this is that it is uh, this, the, the area of artificial intelligence 
intelligence in general and uh, FRT in particular is that it's completely unregulated. Not only here and for sure in, in Britain where they really go overboard. I notice that every time I visit. So it's a very lively, uh, interesting and, and fun documentary about a very serious subject. Coded bias about the Algorithmic Justice League and their work is streaming now. It's one of these things that's at, at virtual cinemas in LA. You can see it at the Lemley Theater's website where you buy a ticket to stream it. That's L-A-E-M-M-L-E dot com. And I just want to add, if I may, that there are, I went on that site, I went on that site, there are all kinds of riches at the Lemley Virtual Cinemas, in addition to which you'll be helping them survive because they were in trouble even before COVID hit and it's much worse now. And I also want to talk about a new film on Amazon Prime that I thought was amazing, Ammonite. It stars Kate Winslet, and it has an unlikely subject. It's set in the 1840s on England's southern coast, and it's about a, a poor woman who lives with her widowed mother and hunts for fossils and sells them to wealthy collectors. You could call it a feminist film about gender and class, but as a film, it's so much more. The, the look and the sound of the film is, is uh, remarkable. Uh, what did you think of Ammonite? I certainly thought it was a very beautiful film, and I'll get into that in a second. I might have thought it was more amazing if I hadn't seen uh, director Francis Lee's previous film, God's Own Country, uh, which came out in 2017, and I think you can still see it on Netflix. I'm, I'm not sure about that, which starred uh, the wonderful Josh O'Connor in a very different role from his Prince Charles. He plays this incredibly sullen, taciturn uh, farm worker who falls in love with a Romanian migrant worker. I considered that the best film of its year. And my problem with Ammonite is that it's the same film in a very different form. It's based on a real-life working-class paleontologist named Mary Anning, who made some very famous discoveries, one of which landed up in the British Museum. And uh, although there is absolutely no evidence that she was lesbian or ha actually had any uh, lesbian relationships, Francis Lee gives her one with an upper crust young woman, a young wife uh, who's, discover who's recovering from a, an illness. She's played by Shorsha Ronan and the woman, the, the paleontologist is played by Kate Winslet. So you have a very blue ribbon, two leads. But it seems to me, and there's no reason why he shouldn't give her this love life. It's just that it seems, A, like an awkward contrivance, uh, which may be one of the reasons why I had my misgivings about it, because it, it feels to me grafted on. Uh, love grows between the two of them. The husband is uh, dispatched or dispatches himself to the, the um, a country. But it, it wasn't very persuasive, even though there's some extremely graphic sex scenes um, there, which apparently Winslet and, and Shosha Ronan crafted themselves, if that's the word. 
so it, it, it's all tucked into the same formula as God's own country. I do agree, John, that this is an absolutely beautiful um, film. It's set in Lyme Regis, in the spa Lyme Regis, but this is a very different Lyme Regis from the ones that you see, the one that you see in Jane Austen adaptations <laughs> where the sun is always shining and people are always cured and so on. Here, there are gray rolling waves which look absolutely wonderful and a rocky landscape that's absolutely gorgeous. The fossils are wonderful. It is viscerally uh, naturalistic and, and beautiful and, and uh, very much uh, pays tribute to his, the director's love of landscape. I believe he may have grown up in the country uh, himself. But uh, emotionally, um, it didn't work for me at all. Let me just say a word for Kate Winslet. The character she plays is, is so repressed, so stubborn, so inexpressive. This is a very hard job for a you know Hollywood superstar who we remember her from Titanic. What was it now, 25 years ago or something? Uh, it, it takes a lot of courage and commitment and willingness to do new things for Kate Winslet to do this. And you really have to admire the choice that she made here. And, and one other thing about the we, we call this a lesbian affair, but uh, the film is quite correct in suggesting that the whole concept of lesbian didn't even exist in the 1840s. There were women had intense friendships. They loved each other. They might even sleep in the same bed. But the film is, is um, accurate, I think you could say, in showing two women who were not having a, quote, forbidden affair. And you're right, it is, it is quite graphic. I have one, one question. This, this Shirsa, is that how you pronounce your name? Shorsa? How, where do you get Shorsa Ronan out of S-A-O-R-I-S-E? What kind of language is this? Well, you have to go and see the photo that she put up um, years ago, uh, with a pl standing with a placard that's, that, sh that shows the phonetical spelling. So it's Shorsa. She's Irish, obviously. Um, but um, I, I do want to say that that is true of Winslet's character, and she plays her marvelously. Uh, it's the same, exactly the same character, except a woman that Josh O'Connor, you know, pl plays. And I got to say that coming from the working class family myself, I do resent it when when filmmakers make out that working class people can't speak. <laughs> My family was extremely talkative, as am I. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just seems like a very odd uh, kind of attribution that you see a lot in Mike Lee's films and, and Ken Loach. And it's not the case. They just speak differently. Ammonite playing now on Amazon, but you have to pay for it. Uh, we have time for one more quick recommendation from you. Yes, I want to recommend a very lovely, very small, very understated film called Driveways, which turned out to be um, the very good actor Brian Dennehy's last performance before um, he died of complications of sepsis. Um, last year. It did come out last year and the critics absolutely adore it. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just about an Asian-American uh, single mother who brings her small son to clear out her deceased sister's uh, very cluttered home and he bonds with the old man next door uh, who's played by Dennehy and it's just a wonderful performances all around especially by Hong Chow as the as the mother and the little boy but Dennehy is absolutely he's one of these actors 
He looks like a thug and has played many thugs in in movies, but he's also a theatre actor who went to Colombia. Uh, and here he's doing a huge amount without, with, by, while saying almost anything. You learn more and more very slowly about the life of this man who's nearing the end of, of his life, both in the film and out of it. It's a superb performance and you can watch it on Amazon via Showtime. So um, you can either take out, you know, a seven-day freebie on Showtime, or if you're a member, you can see it there. And I, I, I think I'm going to be voting for him and, you know, for best supporting actor or best actor for this performance. So we've talked today about the documentary Coded Bias, the women of color who formed the Algorithmic Justice League. You can buy a ticket for that at lemily.com. We talked about Kate Winslet in Ammonite. That's at Amazon Prime where you pay for it. And we have one recommendation that's free. Brian Dennehy in Driveways on Amazon Prime via Showtime. Ella Taylor is our Virus Time TV critic. Ella Thanks again. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.